Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out all the stuff we've been riding and reviewing recently over at blisterreview.com. And if you are planning to camp in the Gunnison Valley soon, especially up by Crested Butte, please make sure you're up to date on the latest camping regulations. Though some of the rules have changed recently, Blister reviewer Dylan Wood has been keeping tabs on how the new rules are going, and he reports that things are running smoothly and sites are definitely still available. We've got a link in the show notes with everything you need to know, so please take a look before you head out there. And speaking of Dylan Wood, I'm very pleased to announce that he's making his return to Bikes and Big Ideas today to check in on all the stuff he's been testing recently. We discussed some short travel bikes at very different price points from Pivot and Ibis, some longer travel options from Canfield, Comensal and Forbidden, and get into it about the relevance of bike weight, the current state of the drivetrain wars between Shimano and SRAM, and a whole bunch more. So let's get right into my conversation with Dylan. All right. Well, today we have Blister Bike Reviewer Dylan Wood on. Dylan, how are you doing? It's been a while since you've been on. Yeah, I feel like my uh, podcast side is a little rusty for sure, but it's good to be back on and just went on a nice bike ride here. It's been really wet lately, so dirt's been awesome and yeah, things have been good over here. Sweet. Well, glad to have you on and you've been riding quite a bit of stuff recently. So, Let's start off talking about kind of the shorter travel end of the spectrum. Tell us what you've been riding on that end. Yeah, so my summer started off on the Pivot Trail 429, new bike that they released earlier. And I came away being super impressed by that bike, especially riding a lot of Hartmans out here in Gunnison. It's super easy to be overbiked at Hartmans. So having like a shorter travel 29er just really made a lot of the trails there a lot more fun than on like an enduro sled. And not only that, but I was surprised by how versatile that bike could be when taking it up to CB and doing some of the other stuff that I would usually opt for my, you know, enduro sled on and being on something shorter travel also was fun to mix it up and, you know, didn't feel like I was going to die. So that's great. Yeah, I actually recently had the experience of chasing Eric Friesen around Hartman's with him riding that pivot, and I was on a Santa Cruz Nomad, and it was certainly the differences were obvious, like kind of rolly pumping terrain where you're just trying to, there's not quite enough pitch for you to just let gravity do all the work, and you're trying to build speed however you can, and I just could not keep up with him on that kind of stuff with the bike difference, you know, the extra. 50 millimeters of rear wheel travel the nomad's 170 millimeter bike and the pivot's only 120 and it was very very obvious that he was on something a whole lot more efficient and get a couple little rollers to pump through and he was just gone and I, I couldn't do anything with it but then like you said too uh the net yeah the next day we went up and rode dr park on the same bikes again and in that case the nomad felt like maybe the more appropriate choice but he was definitely making it work on the pivot too and so seemed like a pretty impressively versatile bike. And in fact, our full review of that just went up about an hour ago as of the time we're recording this. So for all you folks listening, you'll be able to check that out now. That's up on the site as of super recently. Dylan, how about taking us through the other not entirely similar uh, short travel bike you've also been spending some time on? Yeah, so it's been really good to get on the Ibis Ripley AF just because of how similar it is to the Trail 429. 
um, being a short travel 29er with DW link suspension. I think these two bikes have a lot in common. One of the major differences though, is just the size of the bikes being that the Ripley AF that we have is a medium and the 429 we have is a large. So, you know, putting size differences aside, definitely really enjoying, enjoyed my time on the Ripley AF, you know, for much of the same reasons that I enjoyed the trail 429. But I also think that it's awesome what Ibis has packed into the Ripley AF for uh, such a reasonable price. Yeah, it's sort of a cool thing where you're comparing two bikes that are on one hand pretty similar in that they're both 120 travel DW link bikes. But on the other hand, there's a wild difference in the price, like you just said. The uh, pivot that you were on, like we were saying, it's the Pro XT XTR build with the Enduro suspension spec and then the carbon wheel upgrade, all of which puts it at almost $9,000 retail price. Whereas, well, which build have you been riding for the Ripley AF? So it's kind of a mix of the Dior and SLX builds. It's uh, pre-production Ripley AF that kind of has some mixed parts on it. And so it's yeah, kind of between the SLX and the Dior build. So somewhere around three, four grand. Right. So if I have it right, the... Dior build retails for $3,200 and then the SLX one is $4,100, I think. And the bike you've been on basically, and it's got, it's closer to the Dior build basically. And so it's honestly like not that much more than a third the price of the pivot. But despite that, it sounds like, I mean, don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to hazard a guess that you're not having a third of as much fun on the Ibis. Exactly. Yeah. I think the Ripley AF opens up the door for a lot more people to get on a, you know, down country 29er to use the parlance of our times. And, you know, you don't, it's a good example of you don't have to drop a lot of money on a carbon, you know, bike that I feel like the XC or just lower end trail bikes are, you know, usually go for being really light and being really light tends to be really expensive. So I think it's good to have that kind of option in the, you know, three to four grand ballpark that you can still have a ton of fun on, you know, especially for someone like me having just jumped off of a $9,000 bike. Like you said, I definitely was not having a third of the fun. So I think it, makes a lot of sense for someone like, you know, Eric or I who have higher end enduro bikes as our personal bike. And, you know, maybe you don't want to spend as much money on like a secondary shorter travel bike for doing more mellow terrain, like out at Hartman's or, you know, just having a bike you can ride all day on and not feel super fatigued by the end of it. But it is also a really good option for, you know, beginners who are dabbling in mountain biking and, you know, maybe don't need the squish of an enduro bike because they're just not riding that kind of terrain. Yeah, I think it'll definitely open the door for a lot of people to to get into the sport. Yeah, it seems like a really sweet option from that perspective. And it is just cool to have Ibis doing those sort of more price point af builds but they got both the ripley af and the rip mo af now um for a brand that's sort of historically been known for pretty high-end carbon bikes they've 
made a step into the more affordable realm and seem to be doing really well with them. I see a ton of them out on the trail and they seem to be super well received. And, you know, you and Eric and Luke have all had good things to say about that bike too. So I think that's super cool. And it is definitely worth, I think, also commending Shimano for how good a job they've done with their less expensive 12 speed drivetrains. Um, you know, like you were saying, the Dior, mostly Dior build on the Ripley AF you've been riding has been working pretty well. And, uh, one of the bikes that I reviewed earlier this year that I still remember the most fondly and had the most fun on was the Marin Elroy, their ultra aggressive hardtail, which, uh, it only comes with a single build that's got a mostly Dior drivetrain on it. And sure, the cassette's kind of heavy and stuff like that, but by and large, it worked just fine and wasn't really hindering my enjoyment of that bike much at all. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing coming off of I've spent a good bit of time on, well, actually, now every level of the current 12 speed stuff from Dior through XTR and. There's definitely some significant weight differences and some little bits of refinement here and there, but by and large, even the less expensive Dior and SLX builds work super, super well. And Shimano's done a really nice job with this. So it's cool yeah. to have those options. And also cool that you can kind of mix and match and pick and choose the parts you want. Like, for example, the a ton of the weight differences in the crank and cassette. And so if you were trying to save weight on a budget, but it's also something that works pretty well. You can definitely do something like go a little higher end on those parts and save on the shifter and derailleur and so on and still have something that works pretty well without a massive weight penalty. So all of that's pretty sweet and they've done some nice stuff there. Totally. Yeah. I've, I think you said it really well. I've definitely enjoyed my time on every Shimano drivetrain I've been on and the Dior and SLX mix that we had on the Ripley AF is no exception at all. Really good shifting, never dropped a chain and yeah, it wasn't super ridiculously heavy and really good price as well. And I feel like, you know, maybe you can chime in and disagree, but I, I feel like for the past maybe five ish years, I feel like SRAM has had more dominance in the drivetrain industry. And I feel like a place where, Shimano has this opportunity to, you know, make a comeback. And I feel like they kind of are is in this lower end spec because I, I would take, you know, Dior or SLX over NX or SX any day. I don't know about you. No, I totally agree with that. I mean, at the higher end, I kind of care less. They both like both brands, high end stuff works really well, but I'm absolutely with you that, the farther down the totem pole you go, the more clearly Shimano is kind of winning when it comes to the less expensive stuff. And yeah, I think you're also right about that first point, you know, SRAM beat Shimano to the punch on 12 speeds by a big margin. And, um, you know, they were years ahead of Shimano on that and definitely clawed out a huge chunk of market share just by dint of being the, the company that had the wider range 12 speed option available. But, um, Shimano's now obviously caught up on that front and have done some really nice stuff, especially with the less expensive options, which is super cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I still I still remember the first time that we got, you know, 52 SRAM cats uh SRAM cassettes in the bike shop and just looking at those dinner plates on the bike 
And I think Shimano has come a long way since, you know, that sort of punch to them. And yeah, I think they're definitely making a comeback. Kudos to Shimano for what they've done with us. So let's maybe move into the bit longer travel end of things. Tell us a little more about what you've been riding for some bigger bikes. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time on the Canfield Lithium, which is their, you know, Enduro 29er. Um, spent a lot of time at the bike park on that bike, which felt totally at home there. Um, even took it, you know, out to Hartman's too on those more mellower trails and really enjoyed it a lot. I think what stood out the most on the lithium was just how well it cornered. I was finding myself taking more speed into corners and feeling more support. I'd say from that bike in corners than a lot of the longer travel 29ers I've ridden. So that bike was a lot of fun to corner. So just for people who might not be familiar, that's a 163 millimeter rear travel, if I have it right. And a 170 front fork on those. And the cornering thing is interesting. One of the things that is sort of most notable about that bike is that particularly for a pretty long travel bike like it is. It's got notably quite short chain stays. Mm-hmm. Get the geometry chart here, but I think they are, yeah, they're 430 millimeters, which, and they're constant across all four sizes, which for a 160 plus travel rear bike is definitely on the short end of things. You think that is sort of part of what's contributing to the kind of snappy cornering and stuff that you're feeling? Just look, I have, again, this is a bike that I haven't ridden, but just looking at the, geometry chart that was kind of the first thing that left out in me as being somewhat notable about it yeah totally comparing it to the mega tower specifically which has change stays of 436 or 446 depending on the flip chip setting i think that could definitely explain a lot of you know how, why it felt good in, in corners you know because of that shorter rear end um i think CBF and the coil also had good amount to do with that. Uh, I was super impressed by CBF too, for sure. Just to pause real quick for people who might not be up to speed here. CBF is the Canfield balance formula. It's the design for the rear suspension linkage that Canfield uses. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. It felt pretty good balance of like traction and efficiency in that suspension, which is, you know, basically what they set out to do. And I think they did a good job doing it. Um, that mixed with the more linear coil that, you know, encourages a little firmer setup at the beginning, just, you know, because you have to meet those curves at the end, uh, you know, linear versus progressive. I think suspension coil chain stays probably all had to do with why it felt so good cornering. Anything else you want to talk about that? Thoughts on how it climbs or pedals in particular or anything else noteworthy about it? Yeah. At Hartman's where I was expecting, you know, like we were talking about earlier, being on like a longer travel bike, you can feel like you're riding a beanbag around sometimes at Hartman's. Whereas on the lithium, I, I didn't really feel like I was, you know, overbiked too much to the extent that I felt like I was on my mega tower. I guess it's kind of hard to explain that, but I think that again goes back to the suspension 
and the coil as well, climbing really well. Um, you know, not a lot of squish felt more on like the efficient end of the spectrum. If I had to, to put it on one side or the other. So, you know, that made the more mellow trails at Hartman's a lot of fun. And, you know, there's a lot of like fast tight corners at Hartman's where it's fun to see how fast you can go. And again, that made the lithium lithium a really good bike for that. It does sort of sound and seem like it's a relatively versatile bike for having as much travel as it does, which you kind of have some bikes that are, I'm thinking of specifically the privateer 161 in particular that I spent a bunch of time on earlier this year that I liked it a bunch, but it's a super game on enduro race bike, very much first and foremost, that really feels like it needs to be going hundred miles an hour before it kind of starts to work well. And it does that really well, but it is a little more one dimensional in terms of the kind of performance characteristics that it really excels at. And so um, it's just neat that there are, bikes kind of taking similar travel numbers but taking a very different approach to kind of how they strike that balance and sounds like the lithium is definitely more on the more versatile playful side of that rather than just a super focused go fast or do nothing else kind of race bike yeah i'd say the mega tower is similar to the 161 in that regard so it was really good to mix it up and, and be on the lithium. Yeah. had a lot more fun and a wider variety of terrain on that bike for sure. So while we're on the longer travel bikes, is there anything else you've been spending time on to run through here? Luke just handed me his meta TR this past week. So I can get some time on that while he's getting time on the Ripley AF and the Canyon spectral that we have coming in. And so I've been on two rides on Luke's Meta TR so far. So I definitely don't have any anything definitive to say about that bike, but first impressions have been good so far. Um, again, I feel like the coil that's on that bike specifically is one of the bigger um, factors on that bike that affects how it rides the most, I think. Um, really just feel like I need to get a coil for my mega tower, I think is the, is the main takeaway from all of this. But anyway, I, I feel like, you know, usually trail bikes with coils to me is like, "Eh, do you really need a coil on that bike? But for the meta TR, I feel like that bike does really well with the coil. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a heavier bike too. I think that's one of the the things that doesn't take a lot of time, a lot of time to figure out, right. It's pretty easily apparent how heavy a bike is. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm still trying to figure out what kind of pros that creates out on the trail, right. Because you can, you know, think of a bunch of cons of, you know, a heavy bike, blah, blah, blah. But I do think there are definitely some pros that go along with having a little bit more weight to your bike. Like, you know, anyone who's ridden an e-bike, for example, will know that they go straight and fast really well just because they're so heavy. So I feel like the Meta TR's weight has some positives for descending specifically. It just feels more planted and gets deflected a little less, I'd say, than some lighter bikes I've been on for sure. That's really interesting. So 
I'd be curious for you to elaborate on that a little bit, right? Like we talk about that sort of thing all the time on the ski side where in that world, especially a bit of weight often adds up to quite a bit better suspension and better stability. And obviously bikes are a little bit different deal in that they have specifically have suspension built into them in a more sort of, I guess, obvious way for lack of a better way to phrase it. But I take it your, your take is sort of that the same kind of thing applies and that just a bit of weight and a little momentum behind a bike does tend to help it feel a little more stable in absence of any other real differences. Is that kind of where you're going with this? Yeah, I don't think it's any certain, there's no, not really a certain component or group of components on the Meta TR that are, you know, notably heavier than other stuff that I've been on. You know, it's mostly standard stuff like DT Swiss wheels, you know, SRAM guide brakes, you know, Lyric fork and whatnot. The coil, yeah, it's a little heavier. I think, you know, just being a aluminum, pretty burly frame, I think most of the weight is in the frame, uh, you know, that makes that bike heavier than others. Um, and I, I could be wrong on that, but I, I feel like none of those components are really notably heavier than others. It's pretty standard stuff. So yeah, agreed. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty normal looking build. The RockShox super deluxe coils, maybe the one thing that's a little bit standout, but that's a shock that ends up on a whole lot of bikes. That's certainly not out of left field or anything. And like you said, it's a, pretty normal build for a 140 150 kind of travel trail bike so nothing super weird there but then i think you're right that a lot of it is just that it's a very burly pretty heavy aluminum frame and none of the parts are exactly light they're just not individually super heavy and it all adds up to a kind of portly package i want to say if i remember right from luke's flash review it's on the order of 36 pounds or thereabouts yeah I think 36 pounds, you know, built without pedals, without any other accessories. So yeah, definitely on the heavier side for a trail bike, maybe even a little on the heavier side for an enduro bike too, at least just out of the box, you know, without cush core and whatnot, you want to add to your bike. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like the extra weight being in that frame just gives it like a more planted feel. I don't know if I've spent enough time on the bike to speak as to whether or not that extra weight is apparent in how stiff the chassis is. Um, probably have to see if I can get tuned into that, but yeah, I don't, I don't think the, the weight is a bad thing at all on this, on this meta TR. And I feel like if you're getting a trail bike with a coil, you're probably not going to be too concerned about weight to begin with. So, yeah, I think that's fair. And you know, I've spent time in a bunch of, for kind of by happenstance, I've been riding mostly kind of longer travel enduro bikes of late and have been on some things ranging from like the Rocky Mountain Altitude with their kind of high-end build that was 31 pounds or so. And then that Privateer 161 that I just talked about as I built that up, that was pushing 36 pounds also. And so there's a substantial spectrum there. And I guess my sort of general way of looking at it is I think that the more you are doing kind of grind up a long or long, not super steep climb, but just grinding out a big continuous climb and not trying to go super fast and then 
ripping a big long descent back down versus doing a lot of more rolling terrain where you're changing direction and going up and down and up and down a whole bunch. The more you're on the former camp of just winch and plummet kind of stuff, the less weight is a detriment and you can get away with adding weight to improve performance in other areas, do bigger brakes and heavier tire casings that are more durable and more supportive and coil suspension and so on and so forth with not no downsides, but fewer downsides than you would see if you were doing, you know, a bike to go ride around Hartman's where you're doing lots of flatter trails and lots of changes in grade and pumping through lots of stuff and having to work harder to build speed on the way back down. Those differences become more apparent. So yeah, there's no wrong answer. It's just really, I think kind of like you, what you were saying depends on what you want the bike to do. And that comment does seem like a really neat option for at least a certain subset of people. And particularly given that it's priced really well, that, that build that Luke has, they, they've made a point of prioritizing high end suspension. It's got a Lyric ultimate and the RockShox super deluxe ultimate rear shock, but then a SRAM GX drivetrain, which is, works just fine. It's not the fancy high end blingy stuff, but gets the job done for sure. And if I remember right, the retail price on that, something like $4,600. So particularly given that you're getting that top tier suspension, it's a pretty damn good deal. So for the right, you know, the person who is interested in the high end suspension and can live with a cheaper drivetrain and a little bit extra weight, it seems like a sweet option. Totally. Yeah. I, I can't think of many other bikes off the top of my head where you pay 4,600 and get top tier suspension. And yeah. back to what you were talking about with, um, you know, weight and talking about those enduro bikes. I think it does make sense that the meta TR feels like so far it descends more like an enduro bike than a trail bike. Um, you know, because of, I think geometry is a big factor here and Luke Luke's meta is a medium to be clear. And if I were to go just by Comensol's size chart, I'd probably be on a large, but I've actually been happy with the medium and I felt like it's been definitely one of the more stable mediums I've ever been on. Um, I think the reach for a medium is somewhere around 460. So that's pretty long for a medium for sure. Might even have some 460 reach large bikes out there to compare it to. But yeah. Yeah. The, that meta TR, the reach on the medium is 465 and the large is up to 490. And then those are a 1230 and 1257 millimeter wheelbase respectively. So it's pretty long, pretty big for a, 140 travel bike so that kind of checks out that it and that that reach number is only 10 millimeters shorter than the large lithium you've been spending time on for example so it's definitely a pretty big medium and kind of makes sense that it would feel more on the stable end for being a bike that's maybe a little smaller than you might normally ride yeah and for the sake of more comparisons i think that geometry is basically spot on with the mega tower mega tower is like 467 reach i think in a low and 1230 wheelbase so yeah it totally makes sense that thing is fast on the downhill it's pretty hard to to feel like you need more out of that bike going downhill for sure yeah that makes sense seems like a pretty cool option so 
To pivot into a little bit of what I've been spending time on, the biggest thing to highlight is that I've been riding the Forbidden Dreadnought a whole lot. Their newer high pivot enduro bike. It's a 154 millimeter rear travel with a 170 fork and pretty aggressive geometry. I've been riding it in a large, which has a reach of about 485 millimeters. And it's pretty slack, 63 and a half head tube angle, et cetera, et cetera. And also, at least in the large, notably very long chain stays at 450 millimeters. And one of the things that's really interesting about it, we talked about a fair bit in our first look and flash review a little bit, which are both up on the site if you want to check those out, is that Forbidden's hopped on the train of doing side-specific chain stays, which we're seeing more and more commonly these days. But what's notably different about their approach is that they are doing 14 millimeter jumps between sizes, which is way bigger than what most people are doing, which also means that the extra large is up to a just absolutely crazy 464 millimeter chain stays. And then they drop off to actually very short on the small, something like 422 millimeters. I'm doing my math right. So it's a super huge range of chainstay sizes, depending which size frame you're on. And Forbidden's argument is that that means that the ratio of chainstay length to wheelbase is the same on all four sizes, which math checks out. That is true. I'm still having a hard time getting my head around whether I think that's actually the correct approach to sort of make the bikes feel the same to people who are riding those different sizes. And I, you know, it's hard to know, right? Like I can't go readily ride a size small at six feet tall and have anything useful to say about it because it's just going to fit me so poorly that I can't really draw any meaningful conclusions from it. But at least in the large that I've been riding, those long 450 millimeter chain stays, plus the fact that it's a high pivot bike with a fully rearward axle path. So the chain stays are only getting longer as you compress into the travel sort of meant that there was a significant learning curve for me on that bike, just in terms of figuring out how to get it to feel right, particularly in kind of medium speed, flatter corners. If you're on something really steep and you're just getting off the back of the bike anyway, it felt a lot more normal. But when things kind of flattened out and you're trying to muscle it around a flatter corner, especially I was honestly struggling pretty badly when I first hopped on it and with some more time on it, I have adjusted pretty well and have kind of figured out what I need to do with my body positioning and stuff to to make it work. But it does definitely take more effort and sort of a little more focus in those kinds of situations than a lot of other stuff I've ridden recently. On the flip side, it is there are some really obvious benefits to the high pivot layout and probably also just the generally long wheelbase and slack, long, stable geometry that it's got going on when you're just kind of charging through something fast and hitting something really rough and chunky. In particular, one of my last rides on the bike was on this trail that's basically you just grind up a almost 3,000 foot climb and then it's pretty much just straight down fall line skitter like full of just big rutted out bomb holes and it's a, it's a trail that I would happily take a DH bike down if getting one up to the top wouldn't be horrendous. There's no shuttle or anything. It's a pedal only. And for a 154 travel enduro sort of bike, the Dreadnought felt pretty spectacular on that. That's the kind of stuff that it does really well. 
So there are kind of some trade-offs. It has some pros and cons. Um, one thing I was also really curious about that is that it's got, obviously, the added idler pulley up high, and then Forbidden runs a full chain guide with a lower roller on it also. Basically, their argument is that there's so little chain wrap, given the high pivot layout in the idler around the chain ring, that you kind of do need that guide for chain retention. Um, certainly, it's worked great. I haven't had any issues dropping chains on the bike, but there is a an appreciable amount of drag from the all that stuff when you're pedaling it's not like it's enormous and you're feeling like the bike's just got an anchor dragging behind it but it's there there's a little extra noise there's a little extra drag again it's kind of the thing like i was saying about weight before where i feel like it's not too big a deal if you're just sort of slowly cruising up a fire road climb or whatever if you're trying to take it out on rolling trail bikey kind of ride it starts to add up more and feels not awesome but it's been pretty cool. It's a just very capable bike that does really, really well smashing through stuff super fast in particular and having a good time on it doing that. It's just like a lot of things. You know, there's no there's no silver bullets in the bike world, I guess. You have everything's a case of trade-offs and they've made a bike that does some stuff super, super well and some other stuff only kind of okay. But for what it's good at, it's pretty cool. And I'm enjoying my time on it a lot. I remember um, listening to the new bike trends podcast a couple of months back and sound like Noah was pretty particular about idlers and chain drag. So how would you think Noah would feel about the dreadnoughts idler and drag? Yeah, I think people who are really fussy about that kind of stuff are going to be annoyed by it. I also think that that's probably not that big a contingent of people and Noah's maybe just being being a little fussy but <laughs> sorry noah shout out to noah we like noah but just gonna give him a little bit of a hard time here so yeah it's the kind of thing where i'd say like the people who are sort of know that they really care about it and would be bothered by that kind of thing are going to be bothered by it but i think for the vast majority of people who at least people who really do kind of want to be on a long travel very aggressive enduro bike it'll be fine it's not nothing but it's not that big a deal in that category of bike either and like most of the people for whom it is really annoying or maybe just trying to use it as more of a sort of everyday trail bike than it's really meant to be and so yeah maybe they shouldn't be on that bike in the first place kind of situation yeah exactly yeah Though it is interesting that Forbidden also has the Druid, their 130 travel trail bike with the same layout that is really meant squarely for that duty. We haven't ridden that. I would be curious to see how that feels. And, you know, I'm for the most part not really trying to do super long day rolling epics on the Dreadnought. It's just not what it was supposed to do and not what it does well. So it's, you know, testing it more appropriately. But. I would be curious to see if it feels like a bigger deal on the Druid than it does on the Dreadnought. But in this case, I feel like it's not completely not a factor, but is going to be just fine for most people who ought to be on this kind of bike in the first place. Totally. Yeah, it sounds like this user group is the same people who put Cush Core and DH casing tires on their bikes. So 
a little bit more drag probably isn't going to be yeah exactly deal breaker for anyone who should truly be on that bike so to round it out you got anything else for us dylan yeah one of the more unique products i've been spending time on is hustles rem which stands for rare earth magnet tech pedals and they're basically a mix between clipless and flat pedals i'd say um they use the rare earth magnets in the pedal body um the cleat is basically just a you know piece of metal that's attracted to the magnets that you put on any sort of you know two bolt shoe and yeah i guess i didn't really know what to expect when i was first getting uh when i first heard of them to be honest part of me was like oh this is just you know another company trying out the whole magnetic pedals thing this will probably just blow over and you know there's there's part of me that's like yeah this feels kind of gimmicky but when i actually started using the pedals i was like wow i could definitely see this i can see a lot of people appreciating this this pedal yeah they're definitely on the heavier side for pedals for sure they're weighing in about 390 grams per pedal so that's about twice as heavy as most flat pedals but you know that's an extra that's less than an extra pound on your bike so if you really want to get that picky it's like i don't think weight weenies are their target audience anyway speaking of which i think i've found the best application for them so far has been like bike park riding or just basically anywhere you get a little loose um especially coming from clipless pedals it's so much easier to you know release your foot from the pedal if you have one of those like about to fall over moments and need to put a foot down through a rock garden or just like you know i'm gonna drift this corner let me put my foot out makes that so much easier you know a lot more fun in the bike park and yeah i guess you know having ridden clipless for the past eight years you know six years ago is probably when i stopped riding flats i had like a old specialized sx slope bike with flats on it i'd ride all the time it was sweet but then i sold that bike about six years ago so i've been basically strictly clip clipless sense it definitely exposed some of my poor technique that I've developed with clipless the first couple times I, I rode with them. So they definitely take some getting used to, especially if you're coming from clipless, you know, coming from flats too, obviously, if you've never had your foot tethered to anything before, I'm sure that'll take getting some used to. But I've definitely been impressed with, you know, how much pull force is in those magnets climbing at higher cadences not putting down you know a bunch of watts especially in the upward motion like that pedal will keep your foot in like you can pull up on it and it helps keep a more complete circle for lack of a better word um, pedaling i'm curious about that part like if you were to say you know flat pedals are a zero on the spectrum you cannot pull up at all you don't have anything holding your foot down to the pedal if you're not you know, putting weight on it and using the pins for grip and clipless pedal is fully a 10 where like you're absolutely locked in and can pull up 
more or less as hard as you want without it coming out. You have to do the actual twist motion to release. Sort of where along that spectrum would you put these? I'd put them at like 6.5. Okay, so it's a pretty solid connection that you can really pull up on a fair bit. It's pretty substantial. Yeah, there's there has been a few times where I've pulled up too much on them and it's been like slow technical climbs where I feel like before I'd be relying a lot on pulling up on my on my foot to generate a lot of momentum in a very short amount of time. So yeah, there has been times where I've really yanked on it and, and popped out. But yeah, it's it's an impressive amount of pull force in those magnets for sure. You like you got you kind of have to be careful with them in, in a sense of like you know, definitely have to keep the pedals away from each other. But, you know, once once they're installed on your bike, it's really no big deal. I've actually found it comes in handy if you get, like, a flat or something. You can just, like, stick your multi-tool on the pedal and, like, not have to worry about losing it or any other small metal parts that you have. But, yeah, I, I can see both clipless and flat users appreciating this pedal. You know, if you're if you're someone who rides flats and you just want to worry less about keeping your feet on the pedal – Maybe you have moments where you're, you know, floating on your pedals a little too much or, you know, getting those shinners. Um, I think the, the Hustle REM Tech pedals could definitely be something you might like. Uh, someone I ride with, Dakota Tag, was basically always on flats. And he got on these pedals too. And he said that he's, you know, obviously took some getting used to, but now he feels like he's got faster because of it. Cause he just has one less thing to worry about. Um, I could see clipless riders who, you know, have those sketchy clipless moments often liking them. You know, if you feel like you are struggling with clipping out, um, you know, if you have crashes that are caused because you can't get clipped out or even like, a beginner, you know, mountain biker, you don't have to be a beginner, some, you know, beginner to clipless mountain biker. I feel like the hustle REM tech would be a more forgiving pedal to learn on. Um, yeah, like I said, initially I wasn't sure about who these pedals were for and you know, if, if they were, if they had a place in the market, but I feel like they definitely do. So yeah, we're basically on their last run of prototypes right now. Um, the production model should be coming out in the fall. So, yeah, definitely keep an eye out for them. I am curious. Have you picked up any random trail debris with them or anything? We're talking about these magnets being so strong. Is there like grabbing bottle caps off the ground or anything? <laughs> what are we talking here? I actually did pick up, I'm forgetting the name. Can you think of like a black a butterfly clip is that the name something yeah. that you'd like clip a bunch of papers with yeah so one of those like wire parts of those ended up on one of my pedals one day i was like <laughs> how did that get there because i was i think it was at the bike park it's like somebody's teacher must have dropped this off here or something i don't know but that was that was strange but that's the only instance of like debris getting up on the pedals from you know just riding um there's been there has been times where I've like leaned the bike over or set set it on the ground in like loose dirt and it'll come out with some some stuff on it, but it's actually pretty easy to get off. And it's nice that it's on the pedal, obviously, because if it, it was on your shoe, that would be a nightmare. 
And I'm pretty sure there are companies who've tried it with the magnet on your shoe before. So Right. Okay. Interesting. I haven't quite nailed it, but I'm also just racking my brain for opportunities to prank your friends who are riding these of just figuring out what you can stick to their pedals. You know, they go for a break and come back with a mountain of bottle cap stuck to it or whatever. We'll have to work on yeah. it. I don't know exactly what the move is, but I feel like there's opportunity there. Oh, totally. Yeah, steal one of their tools and like put it on the bottom of their pedal or something. I won't lose it, but we'll find it another time. Go for some confusion. I like it. On a more serious note, actually, I did want to ask what you're using for shoes with these, because it seems like it'd probably work best with a kind of pretty soft rubber kind of DH oriented shoe because you do have kind of a flat pedal platform with some pins around the central magnet mechanism, right? Yeah. So I'm using the ride concepts transition with that pedal. And that is the same shoe that uh, Craig Payne, the founder is using. And when he saw me bring those, he's like, sweet. These are like the best shoes for this pedal. Um, the cleat is super flush on the bottom of that, of the transition. So you're basically getting all of the pins on your shoe. And yeah, like I would, you know, you could theoretically use a XC style shoe on it, but you wouldn't be getting nearly the the benefits of, of the pedal. And that brings me to another point of uh, the pins on the pedal. That's also something I've been experimenting with because you can basically mimic the amount of float you'd be getting out of a clipless pedal by placing pins in strategic places so that you have that little bit of float or you can put like full pins and be like totally locked in. I've kind of gone somewhere in the middle with that, but it, it is interesting how much you can change the characteristic of that pedal using pins. I think even more so than a, a flat pedal because like once you put your foot on and you know, the magnet clips to your shoe, it's pretty hard to move your foot around on that pedal with all the pins installed. That makes sense. And I would imagine kind of exactly what pin placement works depends quite a bit on the shoe you're using and how the sole of it is patterned and whatnot. But it makes sense that you sort of have a more defined place that you are going to put your foot down than you would with most flat pedals and it'll hold you there. And so then you kind of have the contours of the shoe and the tread pattern on the rubber kind of interacting with the pins differently. And you can experiment with your given combination and kind of dial things into your preferences. So that's cool. That makes much sense. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to hand these pedals off to Luke probably in a little bit to get his perspective because he's only ridden flats, so that'll be good to know. And then uh, Eric might get some time on them as well, and maybe we'll send them your way too if you're interested and look to get your opinion as well. Sweet. Yeah, we'll uh, keep passing them around the crew and get a few different takes on them from people who ride a very variety of options. I think I'm the only person out of that group who does ride both clips and flats with some regularity. It's kind of an either or camp for the most part. So, uh, yeah, I'm sort of curious. I checked those out. Yeah. That'd be good to know too. Cause you know, coming from clips with, you know, some experience on, on flats as well a while ago, I kind of feel like, yeah, they're definitely not the best of both worlds. I don't think it's physically possible for that to exist, um, in a pedal, but it's definitely, I think a really good middle ground. So be curious to see what you think. And it is also cool 
that they're based here in Gunnison, just on the campus. So when I picked them up, I walked like, you know, 500 yards outside my front door onto Western campus and, and picked them up. So probably the most local product we've ever reviewed here in CB. Right on. Well, those sound cool. And we'll have a whole lot more about the pedals and Dreadnought and Lithium and Ripley AF all coming up. Full reviews of all of those pending in a little bit. So stay tuned for those. And Dylan, thanks for coming on. Been great talking to you as always. And until next time, have a good one and we'll talk soon. Yeah, we'll talk again. Thanks for having me. That's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you are enjoying these conversations, then we would really appreciate it if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a five-star rating or review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Dylan for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye, everybody.